0: Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Professor Raymond Boyle, who's a professor of communications at the University of Glasgow, about his new book, The Talent Industry, Television, Cultural Intermediaries, and New Digital Pathways. So welcome to the podcast.
1: Lovely to be here. Thanks, Dave. Uh,
0: This is a great book, and it it almost... uh, it couldn't be better timed really um i mean just just this week we've seen um discussions about the relationship between the b b c netflix amazon um almost every day there's um not just in the kind of media pages but but sometimes you know in uh, quite prominent bits of uh, news news outlets. There's discussions about how the TV industry works, its relationship to film, um, you know, how it's going to pay for itself, these kind of new models. And so this book is just um, perfect for what we need right now to kind of explain it. And, and I guess the, the place to start is where did the idea come from? You know, where you sort of sat two years ago thinking – in two years' time, we're going to need a book like this, or you know, is it just is it just kind of lucky that your agenda has has coincided with this moment?
1: Well, it's very kind of you to say that about about the book, Dave. I, I mean, like a lot of these things, it's probably a mixed it's a mixture of both. Um, I've been interested in the notion of talent and what is meant by that for. number of years but primarily originally I was interested in the field actually of sport and the sports industry and I'm fortunate enough to have contacts with people working in the professional industry and I've always been fascinated by the note that the way in which people think about how we identify and capture talent and how we nurture it and develop it and then what struck me over the last couple of years is the way in which the term talent has kind of moved into the political and public mainstream discourse, much in the same way as creativity has, um, innovation, these various kind of key trigger words um, where we're told that, um, be it television or the British economy, you know, we need to be investing in new talent. And you know, the term is obviously ubiquitous on television through things like X Factor and Britain's Got Talent, etc. So it's been around. But I was interested originally in thinking about what is the difference between the sports industry and, say, the television sector. As I began to think about it, I realised that was probably a volume of books far too big to be covered in one book. Um, and I began to focus more on on the television sector. So it was really kind of driven by my own broader interest in the television. Sector and building on the, the previous book that I had, that I had done with uh, Lisa Kelly, which was looking at business television uh, formats on television for or, or business and, and representations of entrepreneurship, that kind of came out slightly of that. And this other nagging thing in the back of my head, where I was always interested in talent, and in the sports sector, it was very what I was interested in was you have all these metrics, you have all this data about measuring people and measuring talent and measuring performance. And yet so much of it still comes down to either somebody likes you, somebody doesn't like you, somebody thinks there's something there despite the metrics or something thinks there's something there um, because of the metrics or whatever. And and that relationship between the human element and the kind of attempts to formalize that was the kind of jumping off point for, for, for thinking about the book.
0: What is it then? What what is talent? And it, it's really interesting. You mentioned that um, comparison with with sports and, uh, and data, and and we've seen a lot actually, both in um, what what we call soccer uh, for American audiences, but also in things like baseball of you know the rise of kind of uh, metrics and statistics. But yeah. obviously in TV, you know, it, it's it's a very different sort of uh, beast, really. So so what what does the word even mean? Well.
1: This is one of the interesting dimensions to it. The danger of sounding like an academic in that sense is, is that it's actually a very contested uh, term. I mean, it's one of these terms that everybody uses, but actually people are often using it in very different contexts. Um, in the television industry context, um, I was interested also in looking at the placing it within a broader historical context. So, again, just one of my own... My own uh, interest is always in looking at, you know, the long story, the bigger picture, the historical, and place trying to place these within historical context. So, the term talent has often been used in television, uh, the industry and sector, over the years. And actually, originally, apparently, the original definition of it was to do with talent agent and the fact that talent agents would bring to the attention of uh, producers particular normally on-screen performers Um, and then over the years this becomes shortened to the term talent and referring to to the notions of the talent and traditionally often referring to on-screen talent but in the book I'm interested in both on and off-screen as we talk about. There's a bigger dimension to it of course which is the definition of talent in the public or business context has become a big issue, probably in the last 20 20 years, and in the, the McKinsey type reports uh, around the battle for talent is something that's exercised a lot of uh, human resources departments um, in the industry sector, not not necessarily in television. And this notion that there is, there are people out there who have innate or particular skills and abilities which make them distinctive and unique, and that as a business or organisation, you need to, as it were, build a team by selecting the appropriate talents to work together. And this kind of notion of, I mean, at its core, a debate around nature and nurture, you know, is talent something that's innate? You know, are musicians born? Can you teach talent? Um, Or is it something which actually can be learned and developed was, again, something that was interesting to me. And that's why the first chapter of the book really kind of positions that within the broader uh literature around talent and what it means and what it's shifted if i were to do if i were to say at the end of the book what i think it has shifted i think historically talent has referred to artistic or cultural ability often on screen Um, and i think now increasingly Talent is actually about your commercial or advertising or subscriber value. So it's kind of shifted away from a purely, not always purely, but certainly heavily weighted towards cultural artistic ability. Are you? you know, can you write? Can you sing? Can you dance? Can you present? What skill sets have you got that make you different? To actually, will this particular piece of talent you know, drive subscribers? Will they deliver particular audiences to advertisers? Will they speak to particular audiences that we need to speak with? And I think that's been one of the bigger shifts, which you can really only see when you begin to take the long view.
0: Obviously, this is related to the incredible transformation that um, the kind of the moments of the digital has brought to television. And it'd be, be good to kind of cut into that a bit, actually thinking about, um, as you mentioned, the kind of, you know, the sort of relational nature of talent and the role of agents and how digital has kind of transformed that, particularly maybe to extend what you've just said in, in, into that idea of a culture versus commerce kind of distinction, you know, that it has increasingly, you know, sort of given way to the idea of um, getting hits, you know, bringing a ready-made audience, that kind of stuff. So, so what, what's been the sort of uh, the impact of digital on, on talent?
1: Yeah, I mean, that that was obviously one of the core elements of the book, really looking at how has the shift to a kind of multi-platform television environment changed, or indeed has it changed, the, the way in which the industry identifies, nurtures, and develops talent. So it wasn't just about talent identification, but also about the way that it nurtures and develops, because, again, that's kind of an important part of the equation. Um and the multi-platform environment has means that we've gone from a, you know, over the last twenty years from, you know, relative scarce scarcity in, in potential television outlets and channels and even debates about what we mean by television anymore. Um, and it's not that long ago, four or five years, we were been told that television, as we understood it, was finished. But actually, we see that it has proven to be remarkably resilient. Um, and looking at the ways in which how has that impacted or affected the ways in which talent agents or the ways that particular types of talent um, find their way into the, the industry. And as you mentioned at the start, that became very you know very topical in one sense because particularly in the UK but not exclusively, the UK television sector, where the book is primarily focused, issues of diversity issues of the range of representations, issues of the types of talent or people who are able to work and progress in the industry have all moved up both the industry and political agenda. So the kind of two of them, as it were, come together.
0: In terms of that transformation, I'm thinking we we might do a case study here to sort of sketch that out. But before we do, we probably need to know a little bit about the media kind of ecosystem uh, yeah. for talent. So I, I wonder if you could maybe like sketch out, I mean, this is sort of tricky, isn't it? Because, you know, both the historical sections of the book and inevitably discussions about, you know, the sort of intricacies of the difference between, say, BBC and independent television yeah. could be quite quite extensive. But maybe give a, a kind of a, a brief snapshot of the media ecosystem for talent in the UK, before we turn to um, uh, a show that I really hate, I must admit, but <laughs> the story of Top Gear, yeah. uh, which has been you know incredibly successful and, and is such a great story for the yeah. you know the impact of uh, of digital and um, ideas about talent on screen as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I suppose historically um, within the UK television industry, mm-hmm. how I would particularly. Characterised talent was the BBC and ITV were the two main players, public service broadcasters. Um, they would often sweep up people from other sectors of the, the what we would now call the cultural economy. From I mean, traditionally from television, it was often taken from theatre and theatrical performances. People moved into television, etc., and. Very, very broad brush, broad brush, I should say. Um, what normally, what often happened is, is that when talents were identified or people were identified, they were often taken into quite a paternalistic environment, where they were often developed and nurtured, given often time to develop and space to develop. And this is true also of off-screen talent. So it's particularly true, for example, of producers. So you used to come into an organization like the BBC at a relatively low level. You would work your way up to a producer. um, And if you were fortunate enough and stayed long enough, you may end up becoming uh, a a channel controller or you may move up into the editorial uh, side of of the organization. And in that process, you were kind of inculcated into the values um, and uh, institutional uh, thinking of that organization. So it was very much relatively longer term and once you were in that system be on or off screen it was often quite hard actually to get out of it again (laughs) so once you were once you had got in to television you often ended up moving around in the sector now that has all changed and the change in part comes about in the 90s and, and the 2000s with the advent of pay television and cutbacks and more competition and changing organizations but the shift to to the multi-platform environment um, has put a lot of pressure on organisations such as the BBC and ITV um, to be much more focused on their ratings, to be much more focused on um, their audiences. And the biggest change, I suppose, is that those nursery slopes where talent could be spotted and nurtured and developed have become much more, uh, are much more difficult um, to move on from. A lot of people go on to the nursery slopes and they never actually move further on up the mountain, to use that analogy. Um, And that's a change. And secondly, if you take something like ITV, um, a commercial PSB network, it has become so concerned and focused on the economic ratings advertising dimension to it, that actually it kind of has abdicated in many ways trying to nurture and develop new talent in the way. So it's much more likely to want to buy talent off the shelf. It's wanting to buy established uh, types of talent that will allow itself to immediately have a hit or immediately make an impact in the ratings. Whereas, again, 10, 15 years ago, often people came up through small programs. Children's television, for example, was a classic um, avenue for on-screen producers and our on-screen presenters um, and and so it's becoming much it's become much more uh, short term uh, it's become much more uncertain um, career trajectories have become much more difficult to uh, kind of choreograph or to kind of um, to to manage in that sense and in, and then in that way it, it very much replicates the broader, concerns around people working in the industry, where actually you have fundamentally an increasingly freelance, short term, contract to contract uh, workforce, um, all trying to kind of make a name for themselves um, uh, and in a, in a relatively short space of time. So that, broadly speaking, that's been the biggest shift. The biggest shift has been from a relatively small pool. Once you were in having longevity and long careers and also been nurtured and developed, and inculcated into the culture to one in which, certainly on ITV, really their kind of c- prime concern on screen is to buy in talent that is already fully developed. And I suppose, as a sports fan and a, or a soccer fan yourself, Dave, you would recognize some of those analogies with elite football clubs, where the difference between nurturing and developing longer term homegrown talent. In many ways disappears, and the, the the economic drive of the sports sector and the television sector is to have instant hits instant success and it's seen the way to do that is to buy already established talent
0: i guess what what's interesting with that analogy is you know the the key uh player here um, is something like Amazon uh, which effectively kind of bought not just um on-screen talent but you know an an off-the-shelf program in the form of of Top Gear Mm -hmm. Um, and you know we we can make analogies again in in soccer terms with like Manchester City or something like that Um, but obviously there are always you know institutions that would would operate in this way Um, and and what's really interesting is I, I guess the kind of the sense of Top Gear giving us an example of how this can work to create really big winners um, but with little or nothing going back in into the system essentially
1: yeah I mean it's a good example of um, I suppose if you were saying there was a kind of a, a, you know, a movement and if you take the BBC in the British context as a, as a key historical and still a key player in the the, the television ecosystem um, the BBC historically was renowned for not paying the top dollar for talent. But what the BBC offered you was a creative environment, an environment where the money would be on the screen as opposed to necessarily being paid out in big individual star salaries. And often people then, at the end of their careers, migrated to ITV where they got a big pay packet, but often were in kind of decline creatively and artistically. Um, and what's happened over the years, and it happened for the BBC about 10, 15 years ago, is that the markets changed and the BBC started to try to attract and pay top salaries. So it began to compete at, at that top level. Um, and the issue of the example of a top gear, I suppose, is a good example of where what happens is the BBC nurtures and develops a particular type of talent. In this case, a presenter such as Jeremy Clarkson establishes that brand and that value and then, of course, in in his case, after uh, after disciplinary issues, um, he then goes off and, as it were, really monetizes big time that uh, brand that was established on his on the BBC platform for a rival, and it kind of echoes uh, a tradition of the last fifteen or twenty years, which has seen a rise of kind of talent driven producers or talent driven. Uh, production companies, where um, production companies suddenly decide, or or talent, top talent suddenly decides, why am I paying? Why are we? Uh, why am I not getting the money for producing this program? I'll tell you what. I'll set up my own production company, and then we'll actually get the money for that, as well as paying for me, etc. And that rise of, I suppose, producer-led production companies and talent-led production companies started. I think, ironically enough, by Rowan Atkinson um, with the Tiger Aspect back in the the late 1980s, um, became a kind of a model for how top talent... So Jeremy Clarkson on Top Gear at his time at the BBC um, recognised that there was a problem with a public service broadcaster paying what were seen to be exorbitant salaries to top presenters, um, and it became a political issue. Um, And what he did was he actually... Um, used his production company in various complex financial relationships with the BBC and rights and IP, which meant that he could say hand on heart, the BBC's salary was not among the top earners, but of course he was making um, considerable financial gain through the relationship he had with his financial production, with his production company and the relationship with the BBC. So behind the kind of the front of the shop, top gear programme, behind the scenes you actually have a kind of a microcosm uh, of what is going on within the industry as elite talent tries to take more control, tries to increase their financial value, and then, of course, ironically, goes off and really has the big payday um, on the back of the career built at the BBC, but providing no advantage in one sense to the organisation like the BBC that created it when, as you mentioned, Amazon and others who have entered into the market they don't want to nurture talent. They haven't got the time to nurture talent. Their business model is different. They're not a public service broadcaster. They've got no concerns particularly around diversity or representation. They're about making money. Um, and they're going to do that in as quick a manner as they see possible. And to do that, you need to have um you need to make noise, you need to have profile, you need to get known about. And the easiest way to do that is to buy top-tier talent. Top tier controversial talent, even better.
0: I mean, it's it's really interesting because that is a useful illustration of the strengths of the book. That you know, you can't just talk about uh, the idea of you know, Amazon has bought Top Gear or you know, um, they've poached the talent or whatever. To understand I mean, this stuff, you need to know the transformation of the structures um, underneath this. And the other sort of parallel. Um, aspect of this is the rise of new um, platforms and mechanisms for talent development that are in some ways you know kind of replacing um, that old system uh, of institutions but in other ways actually are very very different and have a very different logic um, and in some ways are are kind of much riskier and and I guess the the example is is YouTube and, and how that works in terms of kind of feeding talent into the system
1: I mean, one of the one of the jumping off points for for the project and the book was was also reading some of the particularly the the kind of um, UK business trade press, where there was clearly a concern among some people in the television industry that the next generation of talent. Um, was not coming into television, but was actually, as you say, going into the social video environment, was going into the, the YouTube environment, and that there was a danger that if television didn't in some shape or form begin to address this, that they were going to lose out on a whole new generation of talent. Now, underpinning that was also a broader concern, which was that fundamentally people under the age of 16 or between 16 and 24 were spending far more time online watching youtube and other online uh, channels than they were watching traditional linear television um now in one sense that's always been the case it's why sport is such a cachet because 16 to 24 year old males mm. tend not to watch a lot of television but they will watch sport on television um but so that concern was something that was 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 interesting and I wanted to explore in the book. And what I think, what emerged for me was that you have almost two distinct ecologies. You have the ecologies, the ecology of of television and the television sector, and that includes free-to-air, paid television, and also channels that are delivered, OTT, over the top through video, etc. You also then have the ecology of the YouTube, to, to, to use a shorthand, the most successful platform, the YouTube platform, where people create channels. They create networks of channels, um, and they monetize that, and at the very top end of it, they make an awful lot of money, and they are inevitably young young talent, young people, and they are inevitably speaking to a young, younger demographic and audience, and that's why suddenly advertisers have piled into the online environment, often at the detriment of the traditional television sector. Um, and television naively, I think, thought originally that if you bring across talent that exists in the social video environment, you bring it onto into television, then that audience will come with you and with that audience will come advertisers and eyeballs, etc. And that simply didn't work. And ITV had a, a very unsuccessful period trying to use some of its new digital platforms to actually try to experiment with new talent. But all they simply did was buy in people from that had a profile on YouTube and whatever, um, took them into a television environment, which is completely different, um, and it didn't work or in some cases was controversial to the extent that uh, caused more reputational damage. So I think what emerges is two distinct ecologies with some overlap in the middle. There is some overlap, unquestionably, and I look at that in the book, and I look at that particularly around BBC Three um, and also around in BBC Scotland have got a very interesting project called The Social, where they actually are using public service money, public service expertise to actually engage uh, and talk with uh, people working in the social video environment. Not trying to turn them into television presenters, not trying to say we want you to now work in our business, but to recognise that actually there is some there is increasingly a kind of a, an online space that somehow exists between the the traditional YouTube platform and the traditional television platform. So they're trying to reach out into that. Um, and extend the BBC brand to, to, to make it relevant to that generation of people, some of whom I have no doubt will go on and have big careers in television, many of whom won't have careers in television because, frankly, they're not interested in that or they don't want to do that. But I think that's been a big changer, partly driven by fear from television, but also driven by this shift where advertisers and the money, to put it crudely, has gone online. Because that is where they can reach uh, and monetize and commercialize products, services, endorsed by, uh, promoted often by this, these younger YouTube, these YouTubers who are almost, in many cases, self-starting entrepreneurs to some extent. Um, some of whom have aspirations to work in television. Um, as I say in the book, ironically, television can't afford some of the top online youtube talent because actually they make more money online than they would from television so again if your driver is financial why would i want to work in television um so it's become a much more complex environment than it was even five six seven years ago i
0: mean we could conclude with um maybe like a moral question because obviously what, what we discussed is Um, you've you've alluded to kind of equality and diversity issues, but we've discussed Mm -hmm. the kind of the structures of cultural production, which, you know, are kind of objectively important, um, even beyond, you know, kind of questions about who is on screen and how they're represented. But I guess one of the things the book does at the end, um, and I think this speaks directly to where the public debate is, is this kind of question about, How will this impact on what's on screen and off screen? Because to an extent, this new kind of set of ecologies promises quite a lot in terms of um, different forms of representation in terms of, you know, specific cultural and social groups having, you know, choice and being represented uh, much more directly uh, in a, more complex environment that isn't bureaucratically controlled and and dominated by by other social groups, but at the same time as you've you've kind of gestured to the need to make money, the focus on commerce, the unwillingness to kind of take time nurturing talent, and to think about the patterns of you know demographics that are coming into the industry beyond does it sell, does it generate advertising also means that, you know, the kind of moral questions of equality and diversity aren't there. So I, I guess the kind of, the question from that is is sort of, are you hopeful that, you know, we might see this kind of new ecology changing uh, representation and, and diversity on television? Or is it a case of, you know, meet the new boss, uh, same, same as the old?
1: Yeah, I think it's a very, it's a very interesting um, issue. And I think um, for me, in a funny way, brought me right back to where I started uh, in the book, which was not to set out some sort of, you know, defence of um, publicly funded television, far from it. And I've often been a critic um, of the kind of rather paternalistic, rather often complacent and actually often class-based nature of an organisation such as the BBC. And I I think I picked that up in the historical chapter where when it was nurturing talent, it was often the talent of the of a very small um, social elite who either had the financial or cultural capital to kind of enter into there. Um, And so it was far from democratic, far from democratic. And that, I think, is one of the kind of appeals to some extent of the the social video environment is that it it appears democratic or at least gives the illusion of democracy uh, in it. In terms of building careers, however, in terms of, you know um, providing something that is sustainable it's actually far from democratic and other writers um, have looked at this in different different sectors and ultimately it is financially completely financially underpinned by advertising and it kind of brings us back to as i say where i started which was that out with the bbc advertising was the kind of the lubricant that kept british television has sustained british television over the years and actually it is the same underpinning financial underwriter, if you like, of the the new social video environment. And the concern is that that means that it dictates the types of content, the types of embedding of of brands and uh, commercial uh, uh, aspects into kind of everyday kind of cultural activity in a way which, you know, frankly, some commercial to even public service commercial television would bulk at because actually... It's still a relatively regulated environment. You can do things on YouTube, on the YouTube platform. You can say things, which you would never get away with on uh, British television because it's simply, you know, there isn't the evidence to to support it. And I'm talking here about commercial products and things, you know, claims you might make about X, Y, and Z. So it is largely unregulated and driven by that. On the upside, having said that, on the upside – there is no doubt there is a generation of people, often who have experience of the broader creative sector coming in through YouTube uh, and other online platforms, and the fact that the BBC and Channel Four in particular have attempted to reach out into that does give me um, does give me some confidence or some 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 hope are actually in that process they will bring through differing forms of talent and often it's off screen particularly around writers and giving people the opportunity to perhaps work on things like the social to perhaps then progress on to bbc3 um to develop their kind of writing skills or whatever uh uh, that might be so i think it it offers it offers a, a does offer those opportunities to bring that in in a more diverse way. But I think the social video environment itself is a highly commercial, commercially driven environment, um, you know, driven by the games industry, a big player in it, and advertising. And that's fine, but that, that it is what it is. And it's not offering a range of representations in the way that still publicly funded television um is tasked with doing, be that particularly the BBC or Channel Four, and they do it in an imperfect way, and they get a lot wrong. But actually, if you were to pull away tomorrow the licence fee, or pull away uh, a level of guaranteed funding, then you know, and and associate regulation, then you know there would be no reason for for any of this kind of talent development or nurturing to go on. Uh, in the way that the the BBC and Channel Four particularly are are committed to, and I think that would be the lot to the long term detriment of the industry. But it's it's very much a, an ongoing situation in the sense that there has never been a perfect time or or perfect pathways into television. That was one of the things I wanted to make a point of in the book because often people seem to herald back to a golden age. And actually, I want to suggest there never really was a golden age. And actually, how you got into television was often driven by your family background, by your class position, by your, you know, if you lived in London or if you lived in a big city, etc., etc. And it was never perfect um, and often by networks of elites. Um, and actually, the idea that we can create a system now which will be perfect is, again, I think a, a misnomer. I think we can do much more. But actually, it's always been a bit like the creative sector it, itself. It's always been inherently uncertain, and so the idea that you can pull a few policy levers and create these pathways which will unproblematically extend diversity and do all the things that the politicians um, and 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 others would like would like the television sector to do, I think is is a bit of a misnomer as well. And I think there's always going to be this fluidity, uncertainty. A mixture almost of structure and agency going on, being in the right place at the right time, still actually, still actually matters, and um, uh, t- often in terms of being identified a, 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 as a new talent.
0: In terms of your own work, um, and if I may, your own talent, uh, what, what are you going to be uh, using that for next? Are you going to kind of concentrate more on that sport? Um, and, and creative sector comparison mm-hmm. or, you know, I mean, I mean, there's lots in the book that uh, suggests itself further research. You know, there's, I mean, we we could have discussed like, you know, more sort of theoretical elements, yeah. ideas about cultural intermediaries that, you know, you yeah. to, or, you know, are you sort of bored of writing about television and it's time to write about something else?
1: Well, I always say, I mean, this is uh, showing my age here, but this is a, the eighth book that I've been either um, single authored or multi-authored or co-authored. And after after each one, particularly one that's maybe single or co-authored, I always say I'm not doing that again because, <laughs> um, you know, it's, it doesn't particularly get any easier. Um, so I, I'll sort of wait and see. I mean, the area that I'm particularly interested in uh, next trying to explore is actually going back into the sports industry. Um, and I'm interested very much in these debates about ownership And about whether ownership of, for example, you mentioned earlier, soccer clubs, as we might say in a North American context, to what extent ownership of soccer clubs actually matters in terms of performance or matters in terms of the culture and uh, um, the cultural positioning and the social positioning of that club uh, within communities and identities. something around that relationship between does ownership matter does it matter for example that your local football club is owned by some uh, north american or, or asian franchise um who maybe only turn up once in a while does that really matter as long as they're putting in loads of money does it does it impact on the club's performance does it impact on the culture and identity of the club and i suppose you know does it matter? Does it make a difference? And I, I'm kind of interested in kind of exploring that a bit more. And I think that's going to be kind of one of the areas I want to kind of develop. Of which, of course, the media and television and television rights and monies, etc. cetera, uh, are, are part of the story, part of the backstory to that. And, and indeed, often in many cases, part of the front story, because often, you know, it's 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 for you know, Manchester City was not bought to make money. Manchester City was bought for a whole host of other reasons, which are around promotion and around um, getting into differing um, media and other types of markets. So the television media side of it is, will still very much be there, but coming at it and re- re- re-engaging again, I think, with the sports industry sector would be something that I would, would, would like to be doing.